1 Samuel 25 is where we're going to be at this morning. And uh, as, we, as we come to the chapter, what you need to know really is that um, this chapter is uh, meant to be a contrast of sorts to the previous chapter. Um, it's not just to be a standalone chapter, and, and of course it's meant to sit in the context of the book, but this chapter really is a contrast with what happens in chapter 24. As you recall, we looked at chapter 24 in the previous weeks, and we find that um, David on the run from Saul, of course there, uh, Saul seeking his life, David hiding in a cave, and um, having the opportunity to destroy Saul as Saul comes in, an opportunity to kill him, but yet uh, all, while, while his men goad him on, he, um, he determines not to do that. <clears throat> he says that the reason that he does not do this is because it's not his place to put his hands on the Lord's anointed, to touch the Lord's anointed, and he uh, withholds uh, taking Saul's life, but instead he cuts off a corner of the robe. And in the process therein, uh, we also find that his heart convicts him of this sin, uh, that he should not have uh, reached out and grasped that robe, taken it from Saul. Uh, and he calls, he tells his men as much and calls them to leave him alone. His men do not want to leave Saul alone. And he ends up acting as a mediator of sorts between uh, defending his enemy, uh, Saul, who wants to kill him, and trying to keep his men from killing Saul. And so he kind of gets caught in the middle there. Uh, but then we also find there that as Saul leaves, David comes out of the cave and makes himself known and reveals what really happened there, that he was one who uh, was able to be within striking distance of Saul. He was able to be somebody who was in a position to kill him, but yet withheld his own vengeance. He demonstrates this by producing this uh, cloth there. And showing this to uh, to Saul, letting him know that you know I had the ability to do so, and and Saul does make this confession that David, you are a better man than I, uh, because you have done good, you have uh, honored me this day, whereas I have only uh, shown you evil, and, and as a result, they have this exchange there where it seems like things are getting patched up, and they go their separate ways. Now, as we come to the continuation of the story, uh, we, we kind of get the close of something before we get into the contrast story in chapter 25. We pick up in verse 1, uh, and we read this. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So we find that here's the close of a chapter that started off the entire book, right? The book is named 1 Samuel, not 1 David. This, a good portion of the book is about Samuel and about the, um, the prophetic work of Samuel in transitioning God's people from a, a people who are ruled by judges now into this period of monarchy. Uh, and so here, uh, Samuel is kind of the last prophet that rules over this group of people, and it's closing this period of the judges. And now we're transitioning to this full portion, uh, or this full rule of the monarchy. And, and as a result of this, we find here that David, uh, while, while we're told that Samuel, uh, he, he died, he went down, we find 
also described that David rose, that he is, is kind of being contrasted in a sense here, that he is now, it's his time, it's now his turn to take over. And we find that in the process here, uh, Israel, looking back on their history, they hold Samuel quite close to them. Because they remember all that Samuel has done for them, and he was a pivotal prophet in their history. He, uh, he held a great many, um, uh, like a great many milestone in their history Samuel was present for and was mediating over. And so as they reflect, as they collect upon uh, their memories and look at his death, they mourn. And while Israel mourns the loss of Samuel, this prophet who, who meant a great deal to them, we're now introduced into a new character, somebody that we've not met before, and we're introduced in a, not by this character by name, but rather what meant most to him, right? So look at verse 2. Here's what we read. Verse 2, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was... Nabal. So we're introduced to this first new character. And we end by reflecting on the name of a character, Samuel. We end by reflecting on one who was promised to God, who was promised to be in relationship with God by his mother, who was the uh, who was fruitful for the Lord, and yet Israel reflects upon the great work. They have this great uh, fondness for him, and now we're introduced to someone, not by name, but by what matters most to them, right? They come out by introducing uh, this man by what matters most. Here's what we're told. The first two things is that he is someone who has two locations. He's a man who is in Maon. This is his home location. But then we're also told that he is a businessman, he has work in Carmel, right? Now, this isn't the same as Mount Carmel. This is a town uh, in Judah. Uh, and he, we're told, is very rich. This is why it leads off describing him this way. He's got a place where he lives, and he's got a second place where he works. And the reason for this work in Carmel is that he needs quite a lot of space because we're told he's very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. It's remarking that he is a prominent and wealthy man. That he needs the space. He doesn't have the ability to uh, let all of uh, his cattle or let all of his livestock uh, graze out in, um, in simply this area of Maon. But rather, he needs the plains that are out in this region named Carmel. And he's there for a particular purpose, especially at this time of year. We're told he is shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, it seems like, okay, great, like that's what you're supposed to do when you have sheep. It's kind of a practical aspect of having sheep, like you got to take care of them, you got to shear them. But what, what uh, the author is getting at here, too, is there's a, it's a particular time of year for shearing sheep. And at this particular time of year, this idea of shearing sheep is connected to a feast and a festival that would have come along. So it's a great time of excitement, of hospitality, of friendship, a time where you're um, celebrating at your harvest, you're rejoicing in the, the bounty that you have received. And of course, when it's time to shear your sheep, that's because because, uh, you know, they have so much wool that it's time to remove that for the, from them and to take, uh, the, you know, that wool and to turn it and sell it or to use, a, uh, to use it for your own purposes there. Uh, and so this is kind of the context that's surrounding what's happening here with this man, Nabal. Now, after all of that description, then in verse 3, we're told the name. Now the name of the man was Nabal. Now, 
after all of that, we finally get to the name. And it's noteworthy that he introduces this man this way, uh, particularly because this name means fool. It, it, you know, you would think it would mean like, you know, savvy or something like, oh yeah, like he's like a strong businessman. But we're told that this guy is called fool. He is someone who is attributed to be foolish in his attitude. And particularly uh, in these ancient cultures, your name would reflect your character, who you were. And so uh, the idea behind this businessman is that he is foolish. Throughout the Old Testament, this same word, fool, Nabal, is used in several places, and it's often used to describe people who are headstrong, who are self-willed, who go their own way and, and interact with the world as if God does not exist. They might have uh, some skills, let's say, but they are acting independently from the Lord. Uh, and so they're often described in this particular way as being fool, uh, fool or foolish. Uh, Isaiah uses this word particularly, and I, and I think it would apply to this character here, but it's the same word, uh, Nabal. In Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6, he says, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. So here are some defining characteristics Isaiah tells us of one who is Nabal, or the fool. Not necessarily this particular character, but the similarities line up quite nicely. Uh, you know, the fool speaks folly. He doesn't have wise words. His heart is busy with iniquity. It's not busy with godly things, but rather focused on selfishness. To practice ungodliness. Not just that he's ungodly, but he's in uh, the habit of practicing it. He's going over and repeating ungodliness. He's uttering error concerning the Lord and leaving the craving of the hungry unsatisfied. He's not uh, taking care of those who have need. And then also depriving those who have uh, thirst of drink. And so we're told here that this man, Nabal, is our next character. Now, by contrast, we find uh, right after that is the name of our second character, his wife. The name of his wife, Abigail, uh, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And so we find here that there's a, this is a study in contrasts. We find a man who is a fool in his wife, who is beautiful and discerning. We continue in verse 4. Uh, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. So as we come to verse 4, we find that David uh, 
he has been here in the wilderness, in this area, with his men protecting uh, the sheep of, uh, and, and the shepherds of Nabal. <clears throat> and as it's the time of year for this uh, feast, uh, David comes and he says, let's send some messengers out uh, to ask for some food. Now, this would not have been uh, something that would have been uh, David imposing on Nabal. This is uh, a customary sort of ask. This wouldn't have been unexpected. It would have been uh, totally normal for David to see someone there and to see need and to meet this need and then to come and ask for uh, a little bit of uh, payment for services rendered there, even if Nabal uh, didn't hire him uh, out, outrightly and say, hey, we're, I'm going to, you know, I, I have this need. I want you to fill this need. Uh, this, this wouldn't have been out of place. But as he comes, David still steps lightly and he still acts in such a way where he is uh, proceeding forth in humility. Look at how he begins his message to Nabal in verse 6. He says, Thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. He comes in trying to uh, enter into this conversation in a very uh, subtle way, in a very humble way. In fact, David even sends his own men so as to not bring an intimidating presence there before Nabal and to say, you know, here's who I am. He, uh, he sends out people who are lower so that way um, Nabal can feel a little bit more superior there. He's not having to come face to face with somebody who was well known in Israel. And so as he makes this request, he, he, just, he simply just reminds Nabal that like, hey, there's some customs and traditions that I'm following in. And, uh, you know, you clearly are enjoying the fruits of having a great harvest here. Your sheep are, it's time for the shearing. I've been watching over them. And, uh, you know, it's the time of year where you would rejoice over the fruits of your labor. And particularly at this time of year, uh, Nabal had more reason to rejoice than ever because he hadn't lost a single sheep. Because David and his men were watching over them. And so his, uh, his fruitfulness this time of year was greater than it could have ever been. If David and his men were not there, uh, you know, David and his men were protecting from bands of raiders who would come in and would uh, kind of take off uh, numbers of the, uh, of the flock. And they would steal them away for their own purposes. And they would uh, rob and, and come from these flocks. And so David is really saying here, like, you are participating in, uh, you know, a sheep shearing harvest that is greater than you would have ever experienced because we have uh, protected your flocks. We've made sure that they're safe. Not we haven't taken anything for ourselves. We haven't, uh, we've made sure that no one else has taken anything. And all he's asking for is whatever you have available. David doesn't make a spe specific demand for any um, allotted amount of payment. He doesn't say, here's what I'm demanding. He just says, if there's anything that you can give in, able, in order for us to celebrate the harvest or the, the festival, uh, it, would be, it would be wonderful if you could do that. He leaves it up to Nabal's generosity. And then they wait for the reply. We continue in verse 10, and we see that the, the reply is not favorable. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So he starts off on very poor footing. He starts off saying, uh, you know, by implying that David is very insignificant, not only saying, well, who, who is David anyways, coming back with like, who do you think you are? But then he also doubles down by using this same phrasing that Saul has used of David this entire time, calling him the son of Jesse, right? This is a, a slanderous sort of uh, nickname that that not really slanderous, but it's a, it's a nickname that uh, Saul has given to David by refusing to recognize him at, by, by using his own name. And, and uh, as David has been Saul's enemy for some time, and here Nabal presses in and uses this as well. More than that, he continues and says, there are many people who are breaking away from their masters. He's accusing David, and he goes on further by saying, like, what am I going to give you guys? Like, I, like, all of this that I have is for my people. I don't even know who you are. I'm not sure where you're coming from. And so he demonstrates not only this lack of generosity, but, also, but a lack of gratitude. He's not only uh, extremely uh, greedy, extremely selfish, but he's, uh, he's not able to be thankful. The service that David and his men provided it likely saved him quite a bit more uh, than they would have, uh, you know, lost. If, the, if David's men weren't protecting them, they would have lost way more sheep than it would have cost them to give these sheep to David and his men for the meal. Verse 12, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So the writer really wants us to see here that it's all about the sword now, right? We got three mentions of sword. It's kind of this awkward grammar that happens here. Like he, he says, every man strapped on his sword. And every man strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. It's like, we get what's happening Right? David all of a sudden pivots and he's all about the sword. He, his anger with Nabal, totally understandable. I get it. But it's not understandable that David now turns into this attitude of wanting to justify his response of killing everybody. He's just going crazy on everybody. And what happens here in the text is David all of a sudden is revealed to be more like Saul then we realize he's revealed to have soul-like tendencies. This isn't David's best moment. He doesn't respond the way that the Lord would have him respond. He doesn't receive this bad news and, and uh, let it impact him and say, you know, I'm going to absorb that blow myself. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to love my enemies. But rather, David says, let's just go kill them all. You guys don't want to give me food? Let's just, we're going to go wipe out everybody. Right? He wants such a decisive victory that he, he leaves 200 men to guard the baggage and like all of their stuff, and he takes 400 so that way they can go and wreck shop. Like, he's, he's ready to get down. He's demonstrating that he's a little bit more like Saul than perhaps we realized. He doesn't 
act in the character that we've come to expect. Because God would have him to bear the insults. He would have us to bear the insults that would come our way when people mistreat us, when we experience injustice. That we would uh, return evil with good. Right? Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You see what Jesus does there? He commands, he commands us to love our enemies and pray for, the, for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What he does is he takes what is said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking about it the wrong way. Here's what the standard is. The standard doesn't work. He also says, here's what the new standard is. He sets the standard, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But then he gives us the reason. And this is the, the why is more important than the behavior. You have to know why because it motivates how then you will act. Right? And the reason he says here why you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is that so you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. To be one who loves their enemies and prays for those who persecute them is then to be like God, to be like Jesus. It demonstrates that we have his same character, his same fruit, right? Isn't this the same attitude that Christ himself had when he was at the cross, when he said, uh, you know, he's praying for those who are nailing him to the, to the cross, and he, he, he's asking, or he's praying that, that they're not aware of what they're doing. Forgive them. They do not know what they do. He's praying for them as he himself is being persecuted. Paul continues this same attitude, this same request in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It's easy to join in with society. It's easy to join in with culture to respond back with an attitude of wanting to get your own revenge, to get your own justice, to come back and to say, well, I'm going to make it right, especially when you have people whispering in your ear and saying, like, yeah, you show them what's up. Go ahead. We'll back you. But to absorb the blow, to receive that uh, persecution, to receive the, the insults and to return those insults with love and kindness is to be Christ-like. David is learning. Right now, his attitude is not very much like God's character, but rather one who's wanting to just respond in his own power, his own might, his own ability. <clears throat> in the Lord's providence, though, in the Lord's sovereignty, he's always working. He's always working to meet us in those moments, to call us to sanctification, to call us to repentance. Saul had many of these moments, and now it's David's turn to find out how much like Saul is he really? Is he exactly like Saul? Is he going to go through with it? 
Or will he hear the voice of the Lord? We continue in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both night and day. All the while, we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, for he is, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So this servant there, he sees what happens, and he goes and speaks to Abigail. And he says, everything that the men said is true that they protected us, that they were a wall to us, both by day and by night. All the while, we were keeping the sheep. What he's saying here is that David and his men not only made sure that we didn't have loss, but they were not only helpful in us keeping the sheep, but they were the keeper of the shepherds. They were the ones who were making sure that the shepherds themselves were safe. David wasn't just a shepherd himself. He was a protector of the shepherds. He had all of his men who were there uh, circling this flock, making sure that they were all safe. And Abigail gets word of this. Verse, 20, uh, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste <coughs> and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And so she's on her way. She finds out what's happening. She's like, let me run through the pantry real quick. She scoops up everything. Like, there's so much stuff that's, that's there. She, it's like already ready. She's just like crushing it, grocery shopping real quick. Got all the donkeys loading it up, right? Pow, 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 supermarket sweep. Get them out there. All right, go. I'll meet you guys there. They're on their way. And they make it there. She sees them. She's like, let's cut them off at the pass. Goes down into like a little ravine. She has them all set up there. And she's got like her own little like war station set up with like all of like the food all like dialed in with all the donkeys. And as David shows up, she gets down and bows on her and she gets down on her face and bows towards the ground. She demonstrates this respect and she has all this food that's here. Like it's probably, I mean, it's, it's not probably what David asked for, but it's what she was able to pull together. And as she demonstrates this respect, as she lays herself out, she fell at his feet, verse 24, and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Right? So then she comes with this opening remarks that recognize David's authority. 
And then she asks then even for permission then to come and to make her case. But before that, she even says, just let all the blame be on me. Now, this is also probably a power move because she knows that like David's not going to get crazy on like a woman in the same way that he would get crazy on the ball. So she's like, yo, just give me all the blame. I'll take all the punishment. And they're probably going to lessen some of the sentence here. Uh, but she opens up in verse 25. Let my, not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. I mean, she just doubles down on that name thing, doesn't she? Like, regard this worthless fellow the fool. For as his name is, so is he. The fool is his name, and folly is with him. Like, that's, she just like, it's like, look, here's what's happened. This is how it got to this place. But she says this, But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So she comes straight out and she makes this opening remarks, but then she jumps right into making this presumptuous uh, statement as to how David will respond. She says, you know, uh, I know that you're going to stop because you don't want to have this blood guilt be upon you. Right. I, I don't want I know you don't want to be someone who's brought this blood guilt upon you. And I don't I know you don't want to be saving with your own hand. Right. She's just kind of like she's, she's working it. She knows what's going on here. She says, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. David hasn't decided what to do. Like, he's just charging forward. She's, she's saying, like, uh, I'm here trying to communicate this to you. Like, the Lord is restraining you from blood guilt. Like, you don't want to do this. Now, this is a masterstroke. Right? Remember, this is a contrast to chapter 24. In chapter 24, what happens? David exits the cave, he confronts Saul and says, look, here it is, Saul. He, he says, he calls out to him and he bows before Saul on the ground. He bows before Saul and makes himself known. And then he says, Saul, I'm trying to protect you because if you came after me, there would be blood guilt on you because you're killing an innocent person. I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. And so you would be condemning yourself. Here, this woman, Abigail, brings the same argument to David. She says, if you bring forth vengeance on Nabal, maybe he deserves it. But the other people, if they die, then you're going to be guilty before the Lord for uh, destroying these innocent folks. Right? Remember the same reference that probably David was uh, pulling from last week in Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Here, it seems like she's pulling into that same bag of tricks. She's saying, okay, here you go. This is a good one for you, David. This is the Lord working behind the scenes because she wasn't there in this exchange with Saul. It's the Lord working to remind David, hey, you, you did the same thing. You used the same uh, perspective, the same reference. And here she fights, not only for her own life, but for the life of all who are with Nabal, but also for David's life. 
She says, you don't want to do this. Because if you kill us, we'll die. It will bring judgment upon you. More than that, she recognizes she has this insight <coughs> that she has this insight that the Lord is going to be the one who exalts David, right? She says, you don't want to be saving with your own hand. She has this belief that David is going to be exalted to the throne and it's not going to come through David's own work, but through the Lord's work. It would be better if the Lord fought the battles for you, David, and if the Lord exalted you to the throne. It'd be better if it was his timing. And then she finishes with uh, this first section with her mention of bringing the supplies, right? But she doesn't say that the supplies are for David because it wouldn't have been honorable enough for him to receive this allotment. But she says, these are for your, for your men to make sure that his men are being cared for, that he is, ha has something for them. She knows that this is not a sufficient gift that you would bring to someone as prominent as David. So after all of this, she continues on and then asks for uh, forgiveness after making her case. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs or conscience of having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So absolute masterful finish for her. She has incredible spiritual insight into who David was. She knows that he's the anointed of the Lord. She knows that the Lord is going to exalt David in his own time. And she asks for forgiveness. But then she says, I know that the Lord is going to do something. I know that he is going to establish your house. I know that it's going to continue. I know that this will happen. As anyone who rises up against you, anyone who pursues you will be destroyed. And then finishes with like, like I mean, come on. This is like almost buttering it up a little bit too much here. But she like sneaks in a little like a little Goliath reference, right? You like what she did there? And the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as far as the hollow of a sling. It's like, She's like, see what happened there? Like, remember that? Like, remember back in the day where, like, you were, like, slinging out and you were like, killing Goliath? Like, that's what he's going to do to your enemies. And David's just like, okay, like, I see, I see where you're going with this, going with this. Right? He's tracking. But as she finishes, she again makes that same case. She makes the same case. When you are appointed over Israel, if you obey, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs or conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. She's like, just let the Lord do it. That's her whole argument. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, remember your servant. She anticipates that David's going to do the right thing. And when he does, and when the Lord completes his work that he's faithful to complete, she says, don't forget about me. 
Like, I, I want to be remembered. Verse 32, And David said to Abigail, <clears throat> Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had, been, uh, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and granted your petition. So David sees Abigail's uh, interception of him and his men as divinely appointed. Right? That's how he opens up. It keeps him from uh, falling into sin. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. David realizes that the only way that I'm able to survive this is because the Lord has intervened. The Lord has brought you to me this day to hear this message, to receive this. Because what he does then next is he does admit fault. He admits that he should not have taken vengeance on Nabal. He's like, I was going to go this way, but I see that you were right. I see that it was the Lord who was persuading me. I see that it was the Lord at work. Right? This is the difference between Saul and David. When Saul confronts Ahimelech regarding David finding sustenance in the house of the Lord, Ahimelech, he says, Oh, oh, oh Saul, like I didn't even know that, like, I didn't even know that David was like, like not on good terms with you. Right? That's what he says in 1 Samuel 22. He's like, let not the king impute anything to his servant or all to the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, of all this, much or little. So he tells him, like, when Saul's all upset with Ahimelech, he's like, I don't, like, I'm not sure, like, I didn't know anything about this plan. I understand why you're upset, but, like, I wasn't a part of this. I didn't know anything about it. And Saul then responds, you shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. Which is like an absolute lie. And then Saul goes on to destroy the whole city of Nob. But by contrast, when David confronts Abigail in the text, she says, Your servant didn't see the young men of the Lord whom you sent. Like she says, like, I, didn't, I didn't know. In the same way that Ahimelech says, I didn't know either. And she continues to provoke David with godly discernment. And David then responds with, uh, to her with a blessing. Because David wants to obey the Lord, and he clearly saw that the Lord had put Abigail in his path to prevent him from sinning. And so as he got the response, he didn't say, you're a liar, I'm going to kill you anyways, and I'm going to go kill like, Nabal and everybody, and we're going to just destroy it all anyways. Because he wanted to obey the Lord. He wanted to be in right relationship with the Lord. He could have gone the way of Saul, but he chose to go and follow the Lord. Verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing of all until the morning light. So, like his name, he's having this party, he's having this big feast, and he's just super drunk. Uh, 
And she's like, okay, like, you're not going to be able to hear any of this, so like, I'm going to tell you the next day. Verse 37, In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. <coughs> so, she finally comes after he sobers up, after he uh, calms down a bit there, and she explains to him what happened. And we're told that as he heard these things, as she told him these things, his heart died within him and he became as a stone. Now, it's interesting how these two verses are described. Okay, I, I think it's important for us to understand here, and I think the author is trying to tell us something. His heart died within him and he became as a stone. Now, we don't know the exact illness that happens here. Most scholars believe that this is probably a stroke uh, that happened here, uh, that he had... Or, or he, perhaps he had some sort of like heart attack, uh, but, but probably uh, he had some sort of stroke that existed here. Uh, and, and it seems as if we're intended to see that uh, this first portion is the result of perhaps years of sinful behavior. Uh, the, the result of him hearing this, but also uh, a little bit of the the culmination of years of partying and, and you know, treating his body poorly and, and being selfish and greedy. But then we're not also let off the hook that there's also something else going on here because then in verse 38, we're told a second incident happens about 10 days later. The Lord struck Nabal and he died. So it's, it's, it's as if we are led to, to see here that first there's some behavior that perhaps brought Nabal to a place where his foolishness caught up with him. And it led to a physical issue, whether it would be his perspective being so wrapped up in his wealth that he uh, was furious and his blood pressure was rising too much and he uh, it led to this chain of events where he got so angry uh, that it led to this stroke or some crazy thing like that and it was about that but then we're told uh, 10 days later it was the Lord's judgment upon Nabal that ultimately ended him two things both Nabal judging himself by his own behavior and we find ultimately, that the Lord who executes judgment. Apparently, this is the same way that David saw it, for we read in verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult that I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil, the evil of Nabal on his own head. Right? David clearly interprets this as divine judgment upon Nabal. Uh, then David spoke, sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she arose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. <clears throat> so as uh, this the life of Nabal ends, David does indeed uh, remember the kindness of Abigail and sends uh, his servants there uh, so that he can take her as a wife. And as this request comes to her, 
she responds with humility. She rose, she bowed her face to the ground, again, keeping in, in keeping with her character that she's demonstrated thus far. And she says, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So she, she's been invited to be uh, David's wife, but yet responds back, like, I, I just want to be someone who's like, you know, I just want to be a house servant. Like, I'm just content to be a house servant, to be invited in. She doesn't elevate herself to this higher position, but she humbles herself to take even a lower position than what is offered to her. But we're told in verse 42, Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. Like, okay, so she... She obviously takes some of the wealth with her because she's got five women with her and like all these donkeys and sounds like she's got a lot of stuff. Um, she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was at Galim. So this story ends with a little bit of a reshuffling of the relationship status of David. Up until this point, David's wife was Saul's daughter, uh, Michal, and uh, verse 44 tells us that Saul remarried her to another man. Now, this was probably done by Saul for a couple different purposes. One, to demonstrate his hatred of David, so he was like forced uh, his wife to divorce David. And then second, to make sure that David had fewer uh, actual legal ties to the throne, to make sure that he didn't have an actual path to the throne to prevent him from becoming uh, king. It was you know, intended to destroy any claim that he, he may have. Now, at this time, political marriages were a thing. And here, Abigail and Ahinoam, who are these two women that are mentioned here, have hugely important influential families in this region, in Judah particularly. Uh, and so this is what the text is trying to establish for us. Now, as we come to the text, here's what you need to know. The emphasis in the text here isn't to highlight David's love life. That's not why it's showing us this, right? That's not the point of what he's getting at here. But it's rather to document the rise of power in the region in relation to David's ascension to the throne, particularly in the region of Hebron and Judah. Uh, and so th this is giving us a little bit more of the background, the narrative, the trajectory, and to see how David got to the place where he got to, where he had influence over these particular regions. And so this isn't so much of a commentary on his you know, practical love life. This isn't a commentary on that. But rather, this is to give us insight into uh, how David will rule and reign. Now, as we look at the, the interchange here, or not the interchange, as we look at the, the relationship of David and uh, these women moving forward, it ends up that uh, <coughs> it ends up that, of course, these women um, bear his future children, are a part of his lineage, that are contributing to the furthering of the narrative, but aren't pivotal in the sense of continuing 
his narrative in terms of uh, his kingly rule, I guess. It's more about power and politics uh, is, is the point that the author is getting at here. Now, as we look at the text, though, we've got to consider it as first century uh, modern readers. What are we to do with this? Because we also don't get a prohibition where, like, it's like, and then the Lord said, like, David, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Right? Because that kind of is just kind of like an awkward thing that skips over here. Now, without diving in too deeply, here's what, uh, what you need to know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created man and woman, male and female, one and another, complementary partners in a marriage relationship. In the beginning, this is how God designed things. But as you move through the book of Genesis, we find as early as chapter 4, right after Cain kills Abel, right after Cain kills Abel, this other guy called Lamech shows up, and he's the first person that we're recorded to see that he has two wives, right? And Lamech is described as just wanting to be an even worse person than Cain, right? Cain kills his own brother. Lamech is just like, I'm going to be a better dude than Cain is, right? Here's how Genesis chapter 4 uh, remarks about Lamech. Verse 19, And Lamech took two wives. The, one, the name of one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, who was the forager of all instruments in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. And Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seven, uh, seventy-sevenfold. So he's, he's just like, a young guy hit me, so I killed him. <laughs> like, one person wounded him, so he killed him. A second person, just uh, a, a, a second young person, just struck him, so he killed him. He's like, I'm going to uh, have greater vengeance than even Cain did. If you thought Cain was bad, I'm going to be worse. This, this is what he's bragging about. And throughout history, those who take on these multiple wives, as the trajectory continues, they are never mentioned in a favorable light. It's always something that gets them into trouble. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, those who have multiple wives, it, their trouble stems from those relationships. And as you move to the New Testament, there are several passages that kind of speak to this. Uh, the, the, the trajectory then narrows back into what is the ideal, right? This is why when we get to the New Testament, we find that uh, the standards and the qualifications for elders and deacons laid out in uh, 1 Timothy and Titus is that they are to be uh, men with one wife, that it's to be singular, that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul answers questions that the Corinthian church had about marriage, he indicates and uses the language for having a singular wife, a singular spouse, just one. More than that, uh, we find Jesus 
when he has the opportunity to reteach on divorce or to teach on divorce when he's asked about it, he goes back to the beginning and reclassifies everything on the basis of how it was from the beginning. He doesn't simply just answer the question, but in Matthew uh, chapter 19, he, verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes the opportunity to reclassify, to reset the expectation. As things started out, well, he goes back to the garden to say, here's the ideal. Here's how it's supposed to be. Because remember, this also culminates in marriage being a particular picture of the relationship with Jesus and his church. In Matthew, or excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explains it in this similar way that uh, Christ has a relationship with his church, with his bride. And so we're intended to see that the trajectory starts off with this uh, monogamous picture. And as sin enters the world, it starts to get a little haywire. But as we move into the New Testament, as we see Jesus, he resets the expectations on everything. We're so tempted. We're often, it's, it's so easy for us to go our own way and to come up with our own things that we have to always return to Jesus to reset the expectations, to reset our perspectives, because we're too, we're too easily distracted by the loopholes and the, the situations and the circumstances. We've got to come and to find our anchor in what he says. And so as we come and look at the text this morning, <coughs> we see that David, he's revealed to be a little bit more like Saul than we realized. But it takes Abigail to stand between these two fools, right? She's got David on one end and Nabal on the other. Nabal is this fool who trusted in his own riches, who's pursuing his own wealth, his own identity. And you've got David, who's this fool who trusts in his own righteousness. I'm going to go and make it right. I'm going to go and, and do, make, make these situations right. I'm going to take my own vengeance. But she's there, sent by the Lord, to remind, remind David that you can't do the work yourself. Your own righteousness won't save you. Your own riches won't save you. But it's only the Lord who can work. It's only the Lord who can rescue and save. And so we ought to leave it in his hands. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your work among your people. We pray that you would apply these things to our heart now. Lord, thank you for your kindness and love. Thank you for reminding us of how good you are, how faithful you are, Lord. Even when we are faithless, Lord, you remain faithful. 
We're thankful that we can trust you. And so we pray that you would be glorified in your church and call us to respond and worship now. We love you. Amen.